Hello, I'm Bill DeMay, Executive Vice Chair for the DC Young Republicans, and this is the District Download. Hello and welcome everyone to our fourth and final episode of this look back at 2021, a year in review. My name is Bill Dumay. I am your host for this episode and we're going to be talking about the economy. We're going to be talking about everything that you've heard from the past year, ranging from build back better to inflation to unemployment and what that means for all of us who are listening, all the 20, 30 something year olds out there who are looking at an economy that is operating not as strong as it's been in the past. In fact, it's pretty dismal. But is it going to get better in the new year? Who's to find out? That's what we asked Joel Griffith over at the Heritage Foundation. And we're going to get a little bit of his insights into the economy, what happened last year, what happens this upcoming year. So Joel Griffith earned his Juris Doctor at the Chapman University Dale E. Fowler School of Law with a dual emphasis in alternative dispute resolution and federal income taxation. He is currently a member of the State Bar of California, and following law school, Joel managed an equities trading account utilizing market-neutral strategies. As an attorney, he worked with Heidemann Noodleman Kalik, PC, in Washington, D.C. During the 2012 presidential primary season, Joel worked for a campaign as Michigan State Field Director, Ohio State Operations Director, and Washington State Parliamentarian Assistant Delegate Strategist. Joel is currently a research fellow for the Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Previously, he worked as a researcher for a former member of the Wall Street Journal editorial board. Joel also was Deputy Research Director at the National Association of Counties. Most recently, he was a director of the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council. Numerous media outlets have featured Joel's written analysis, including The Hill, Wall Street Journal, Forbes Online, Investors Business Daily, The Washington Times, The Orange County Register, The Times of Israel. He's also made an appearance on Fox and Fox Business News. The views and opinions expressed during today's episode are our own and in no way represent the views, opinions, or policy positions of our respective employers. This is meant to be a free exchange of topics relevant to YR Space in D.C. and beyond. And without further ado, let's get to our interview with Joel. All right, so for our last interview of our year-end wrap-up, we have Joel Griffith from the Heritage Foundation. Talk to us a little bit about the economy. Joel, how are you today? Hey, doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to have you here. Can't wait to get into some of the meat of the issue here with the economy. So right off the top here, this past weekend, we saw the Biden administration's signature uh, achievement, the Build Back Better, which be an expansion of the social safety net. Uh, essentially get tanked by the no vote of Senator Joe Manchin. Can you tell me your gut reaction about that? What you thought yesterday and today, what implications that may have on the economy and uh, policy going forward for the remainder of the Congress? Yeah, sure. Well, the Build Back Better uh, proposal was a multi-trillion dollar spending package, more than $3 trillion over the next 10 years. And it it would have actually revamped our economy, transformed our economy, really incorporated a lot of uh, a wish list of the radical left wing. Now, if you look at, for instance, the child tax credit 
that would have greatly expanded the the social safety net would have instituted a form of universal basic income in effect but also there is a big part of the green new deal that was incorporated in this as well which would have made energy costs much more expensive not just for american families but for businesses as well particularly the manufacturing and the the shipping sectors and this would have cost typical family thousands of dollars of extra per year not necessarily in taxes but in higher energy costs so this package uh, that wasn't paid for, that we would have had to print and borrow and tax trillions of dollars worth of, of, of hikes to pay for, um, it really, really would have uh, put our economy further down this left-wing uh, socialist road. So I think this is uh, the, the failure of this to pass, at least in 2021, should be something that anyone who wants more economic prosperity and economic freedom should be thankful for. And so with that being said, let's go back a little bit, though, to December 2020. Uh, what would you say, uh, you know, e economists were predicting would happen in the next fiscal year compared to what actually happened this fiscal year? Well, one thing that many economists weren't projecting were the um, highest inflation rates that we've seen in about 40 years, year over year, many components of our, our cost of living measurements, many components increased well in excess of 10%. Things like energy costs and to fill up your car, uh, things such as many food items increased well over 10%. And even though it doesn't fully show up yet in the Bureau of Labor Statistics data for rent, we know that in many parts of the country, rental costs increased uh, in, some, in many cities, over 30% year over year. And of course, if you look at the housing sector as well, inflation has been really off the charts. We've seen housing prices in many parts of the country increase by over 20% in the past year. So these are very real increases in the cost of living. Many economists, I would say most economists were not projecting this, but many of uh, many friends uh, uh, within the um, economic freedom movement, we, we did actually warn about this as we knew that we had government suppressing supply. We had a lot of COVID restrictions in place. We had a lot of factories that still weren't producing. We had a lot of bottlenecks. And we also had our federal government borrowing trillions of dollars, much of which were actually printed by our Federal Reserve. And that was injected into the economy. So we shouldn't be surprised at what happened. But as it turns out, a lot of economists were not predicting that we would see inflation at such high levels in 2021. And for those of our listeners who may not be economists or brushed up on their macroeconomics or microeconomics classes that they took at college, uh, can you tell us a little bit what inflation is and why exactly it's happening right now? Is there a root cause for the inflation we're seeing right now? Yeah, well, inflation is the overall increase in the price level, and that's to be distinguished from an increase in any one item, such as let's say there's a drought and it hurts apple production and apple prices go up, or let's say there's a terrorist attack on a pipeline and we're not able to get our oil or natural gas supplies and the price increases, or a hurricane comes in, uh, destroys a city and the cost of plywood goes up. That's not really inflation. Inflation is an overall increase in the price level. And that's measured by the Bureau of Labor Statistics through the CPI, which is the Consumer Price Index, or the PPI, which is the Producer 
price index. PPI measures the input for manufactured products and CPI uh, measures the inflation rate for finished products that we as consumers buy or services. So if you look at that overall price level this past year, overall, most consumers saw close to a 9% increase in their cost of living as measured by that CPI index. And that is the highest inflation year over year that we've seen since about 1982. So a lot of your listeners, probably I would say most of your listeners weren't even born the last time we saw inflation levels this high. And something that's doesn't all, that also doesn't show up in those stats, if you're someone in the lower or middle income range, you likely saw your cost of living increase by an even higher amount because that basket, that overall CPI number doesn't account for the fact that those in the lower income level spend a lot more of their income on things like gasoline, heat, air conditioning, or rental costs. And those components of that index are actually rising at an even faster clip. So if you're a lower income person or somebody just starting out of college, you likely saw your cost of living increase even more than that 40-year high of approximately 9%. And, you know, you mentioned that some of our listeners weren't around for the last time that inflation was this high. I'll tell you, your host here was not around when inflation was that high. So this is something that's new to me. And this is something that I remember from my my history textbooks uh, when I was doing American stu- you know, studies or going through learning about the decades of the 20th century. You know, th- this is just something I, I didn't think that we would be having in this day and age. So, you know, we were told earlier this year that inflation was transitory and it seems like that's become bunk at this point. Um, but I'm curious to know what can we do in terms of the, the fed, the, the administration Congress with fiscal and monetary policy, what are some of the ways that or remedies that we could uh, do in order to curb inflation, both in the short term and the long term? Yeah. Well, you brought up an interesting word transitory and early on when we saw this surge in monthly prices increasing, a lot of economists and people at the Federal Reserve are saying, well, this is transitory. And there was there is no real definition on that term. When you think of transitory, and a lot of people think, oh, well, if it's transitory, that means these higher prices are going to be temporary and they're going to come back down. Well, if you listen and read the Federal Reserve statements, you realize, well, that's not exactly what they had in mind. They weren't saying, oh, we think prices are going to go up by 10% and then they're going to come back down 10%. No, they kind of changed the definition on us to mean we're going to have an elevated period of higher inflation. And then we'll see prices increasing at a more typical level of say two or 3%. Well, the problem with that is even if the inflation rate goes comes back down to say 2% a year from the 10% that we're seeing now, well, if your wages never catch up, you see a permanent reduction in your standard of living. So if you look over this past year, a lot of people saw wages increase by three to 5%. Well, when prices increase 10% and your wages only go up 5%, you have a real hit to your standard of living of about negative 5%. So if you have inflation that comes back down to 2%, well, that gap that you experienced this year, if you don't make up for it, even if inflation comes back down to normal, you're still going to see a lower, relatively lower standard of living. Now, as far as the causes of this, there are a lot of causes. A lot of folks have talked about the impact of the Federal Reserve, and that is definitely part of the problem. Our Federal Reserve, our central bank, has the ability to print 
really unlimited amounts of money. Now, there's an understanding, thankfully, in our country, in our central bank, that if you print unlimited amounts of money and you have those dollars chasing goods, you would have rampant inflation. In fact, you see some countries such as Venezuela and Turkey, for that matter, that have central banks that are out of control, that are printing copious amounts of their local or their, their national currencies, and they see inflation not 10% in a year, as bad as that is, some of these countries like Venezuela are seeing inflation of 1,000% in a year. So we're not at that level, thankfully, but yet we still have a problem. You had the Federal Reserve print well in excess of a trillion dollars. They took a lot of those new resources and bought government bonds. Well, when the government receives those new dollars in exchange for the bonds that they issue, well, the government then spends that money and that gets injected in, into the economy. And that's part of the reason why we have seen prices increasing. Think about uh, most of your listeners probably receive stimulus checks probably twice over this past year if they're underneath that income threshold. Well, where did that money come from? Well, we didn't tax it. We didn't borrow it. That actually, in effect, was the Federal Reserve printing transferring those resources to the federal government, and they spent it. That's one of the reasons why we have inflation. But second, and this is a big problem, for the first time in our nation's history, and really in the first time in the history of the developed world, we had governments that were intentionally suppressing output. Think about over this past year and a half, we had all these measures put in place, distancing restrictions. You had a lot of factories that shut down or partially shut down. You had restrictions put in place, even at shipping at docks, limiting the amount of people that could be unloading merchandise. Well, regardless of the rationale, and I know that the excuse was to protect our health, but the bottom line is you had governments that were suppressing output, shutting down restaurants, shutting down bars, shutting down stores. This impacted supply. It reduced supply. You also had a number of regulations that came in, into effect that reduced supply. In California, for instance, you had new tr uh, regulations on trucks that banned a lot of older diesel, diesel vehicles from operating. I mean, I could go on and on, but over this past year and a half, you had supply reduced. And at the same time, you had demand that was spurred with all this government spending that was fueled by, by newly printed money. So that's a perfect combination for higher prices. Supply went down, demand in many instances went up, and that results in higher prices. Which is not a good recipe I'm taking. <laughs> disaster. <laughs> so, you know, with the economy, everything is so interconnected. And I believe the last I, last I checked, the current unemployment rate right now is at 4.2%. However, in terms of wages in the workforce, much of this past year, we've seen businesses try to lure back employees from pre-pandemic jobs, uh, such as in the retail sector, the food service sector, what have you. But a lot of these employees aren't coming back to their, their jobs. And what do you think will get them back? This is, again, something that's going longstanding, more longstanding issue. Uh, you've seen also these employers that are bringing benefits like health care, uh, you know, tuition reimbursement. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what we're seeing just with the job market and, and just an overall try to get, get workers back into the workforce? Yeah, sure. Well, you mentioned the unemployment rate, which is just over 4% now. The unemployment rate um, is back to about where it was prior to the pandemic. But it's very important to take note that the unemployment rate does not directly measure the number of people that are not working. 
it measures the people that are unemployed. And there actually is a difference. The unemployment rate only takes into account those people who are not working, who are also looking for work. So we had a lot of people actually drop out of the labor force that lost their jobs or quit their jobs over the past year and a half. And they're actually no longer looking for work. And the little secret here is that if you're no longer looking for work, you actually don't count as unemployed. And that's how we end up with this situation where the unemployment rate is back down to where it was before, but we actually have a number of total people working in this country that is millions less than it was prior to the pandemic. And you probably have noticed this. If you go to a, a grocery store, go to a bar, go to a restaurant, a lot of these locations are understaffed. It's why you have to wait so long to get service. And it's why some of these places actually are not fully reopened. It's because people have, for a number of reasons, chosen not to go back to work. Now, this situation uh, varies widely across the country. In fact, you have a number of states like Utah and Texas, where you actually have more people working today than you did prior to the pandemic. But you have a lot of states, particularly Illinois, Hawaii, California, New York, where you have many, many additional people that are jobless compared to prior to the pandemic. And so it is important to ask ourselves why that is. Well, a big part of the problem is in a lot of these left-leaning states, you have still schools that are not fully back to normal. You have these rolling shutdowns, you have extreme measures taken under the guise of preventing COVID. And so parents have had a difficult time actually getting their schedules back in line. You have a lot of childcare centers that still have not fully reopened. And then you add to the fact that you had a long period of time in which our federal government had these very generous unemployment benefits where most people found they could earn more money off the job than on the job. And then a lot of these left-leaning states added generous benefits on top of that. So you had prolonged unemployment in some of these left-wing states. And a lot of those states are still providing additional unemployment benefits. And that has incentivized people to stay home. A lot of people stockpiled government benefits that came into the form of stimulus checks and other benefits. And they still are drawing down on those savings and have chosen not to go back to work. And then lastly, I'll add in, a lot of these left-leaning states have continued to engage in a lot of, I would say, COVID hysteria that have given people uh, an unreasonably um, elevated perception of what the risk is for going back to work. And that is also really hampering the labor supply in a number of those states. But I want to stress, this situation varies wildly across the country in places like New York versus Utah, there's a big difference there in terms of how much of that labor force has gone back to work. Okay. And in terms of looking across the board here, looking across the board in terms of state economies, who are the biggest winners and losers on the stance of the economy coming out here at the end of 2021? Yeah, there's a big difference here. Um, states like Illinois, New York, Hawaii, um, a, few of the, a few of those other Northeastern states remain at an economic output level that is substantially lower than what it was prior to the pandemic. But you have a lot of states across the South, um, Texas, once again, Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee, Florida, those economies have largely recovered. In fact, a number of those states, more than a dozen states now, have fully recovered that, that lost economic um, 
um, output levels um, since prior to COVID. And really, it tracks very closely to how reasonable governors were during this past year and a half. If you go back to Florida, once again, because I think it's the leading example here, Florida was largely back to normal well over a year ago at the very same time that some of the most onerous restrictions were still in place in places like New York City and Chicago. So Florida is largely recovered. Texas is fully recovered. Utah, the same. And I believe Georgia as well. So it does vary wildly state to state. And then you added the fact that you already saw, even prior to the COVID shutdowns, you saw many thousands of people leaving each month from places like New York and California to states that have lower taxation, more efficient government services, safer cities. You saw that trend continue and then accelerate during COVID, where you see so many people leaving these badly governed areas to go ahead and go to places where it is safer and where economic opportunity is more abundant. And I think that trend is likely to continue. And so I only have a few more questions for you, but one question that goes back again to wages and workers. Uh, so as a millennial, we're all concerned with the rising costs of pretty much everything from you know going to university and college to healthcare to buying our first house. And these prices have gone up for the past couple of decades at this point. And so some Republicans have come around to the notion, you know, that wages may have not been keeping up with inflation. But I'd like to hear your thoughts on how to rectify these increases of prices. Uh, so it's more attainable for us millennials. Uh, Gen Zers, when it's their turn to come out into the job market or the housing market, to be able to actually afford a home without putting down loan upon loan upon loan? Yeah, well, the, the great question, the good news is over the last several decades, you've actually seen the median household income in real inflation adjusted terms. We've actually seen that increase. In fact, just prior to the pandemic, we were at all time record highs for median household income. And if you look at things in 1980, 40 years ago versus today, and you look at what it took to be a middle-class family then versus what it takes to be a middle-class family now, or what a typical middle-class family makes, you find that the tip at the middle of the pack today is actually far better off than the middle of the pack back in 1980. In fact, if you were to freeze those definitions in place, uh, of what it, what it, um, you know, what it meant to be upper middle-class or even upper-class in 1980 versus 2021, you would find that a much greater percentage of the country would have been classified now as upper middle class or upper class. And that's because the standard of living overall increased dramatically over the last 40 years. Now, sadly, the last year and a half, we've seen the cost of living increase faster than um, wages. And one of the biggest parts of the economy that you mentioned a second ago is, is the housing sector. Um, you have had our federal government massively involved with housing through subsidized mortgages, through credits, through, um, you know, with a lot of these subsidized mortgages, more than a subsidy, it's you actually have the government that there is there as a backstop. And so that has really um, uh, incentivized many additional trillions of dollars to flow to the housing market by way of mortgage loans, because investors that are lending out those dollars view that as a very safe investment because the federal government guarantees the mortgage debt. So I think the intentions were good. The intentions were to get more people into houses, but the actual results were housing prices increasing at a far greater pace than inflation. And one way to look at this is, if you look at the 
percentage of a typical person's income that goes to a mortgage on a new home, these levels are um, well in excess of a third of a person's income to buy that house goes just to the mortgage payment. It's at, it's at a higher level than it was during the last housing bubble in 2008. So you see people not just buying bigger homes, you see people spending a lot more money on that house than they would have just a generation ago. And that's in large part because of those government subsidies. And also back to the central bank, you've had our central bank buy I think over a trillion dollars worth of mortgages over the past year and a half. And once again, the intentions might be good, but intentions don't matter so much as results. And the results have been prices of housing increasing dramatically. And anecdotally, I think we all know young couples, especially that have found it is really tough to get a bigger house once they have a few kids because these prices have increased 20 to 30% in just the last year and a half. And then I guess my last question to you is, you know, looking at the remainder of the 117th Congress, what are you looking at in terms of economic policy coming from Congress, but also to just from the Fed and just overall the stock market, what have you, what is what's on your radar for 2022? Well, 2022, I think that you're going to see Build Back Better come up for debate again. Now, I understand that the news the last few days has been Build Back Better is dead. Senator Joe Manchin says he will not support it. I am concerned, though, that in January, there will be another package very similar to Build Back Better. Uh, Maybe it won't be as big as far as the actual sticker price, but I uh, am concerned that there will be another proposal that will once again sow the seeds of a Green New Deal and a massive expansion of the welfare state. Because we know that all these programs, even when they start out relatively small compared to these bigger proposals, that once it's in place, it has a tendency to grow and to grow rapidly. And we need to realize that this type of spending has consequences, not just in terms of higher taxes, because I think that our politicians are going to try to avoid the higher taxes and try to print our ways out of it. That problem is related then to inflation. When you grow the government, you're not taxing. Taxes are bad enough. When you start printing, then you have inflation that's a concern. So I am concerned about that. Regarding the stock market, look, the stock market today is valued at more than 30% greater than it was prior to the pandemic. And we have to ask ourselves, well, why is it that our stock market valuation is so much bigger, even though our economy is about the same size as it was a year and a half ago? Well, a lot of that comes back to our central bank. You had our central bank buy a lot of assets, meaning they printed money, bought assets beyond just the federal government debt. They bought assets from investors. And then those investors take that money and they have to invest it somewhere. And a lot of that flowed into the stock market. So I think it is very important that your listeners, if they're saving for retirement, if they're making investments, it's always a good idea to consult with a financial advisor um, to, to make sure that you are well diversified and that you're in investments that are best suited for your long-term needs. Uh, but there is no doubt our stock market has gotten a lot bigger in terms of valuation, even though our economy has not grown by anywhere close to that amount over the last year and a half. Well, that is one of my uh, New Year's resolutions going into the new year is to talk to my financial advisor, given all that we've talked about here and all we've learned today. Joel, great having you on. That does it for us today. You could find Mr. Griffith on the Heritage Foundation's website, as well as on Twitter at Joel Griffiths. Joel, is there anything you'd like to plug or or, uh, say to our members before we leave you? 
No, just have a, a happy new year and hope it's a prosperous and healthy one. Fantastic. Happy, happy holidays. Merry Christmas. And we'll see you in the new year. All right. Thank you. Well, there you have it, folks. Four episodes, four interviews, and four days. I think that does a really great job of wrapping up 2021, some of the highlights that we saw, some of the things that we exchanged and talked about over the social media, at our meetings, with other YRs, and I think that's a good barometer and a good baseline to be going into this new year, this midterm election year, knowing what's at stake, what the issues are, and hearing from some of the leading experts in the country about what exactly some of these issues entail, because it's been a while for me, especially with this episode you heard now, uh, going into economic theory and learning, relearning, I guess you could say, <laughs> uh, you know, micro and macroeconomics, um, a class I took way back when in college. Um, so I hope you all learned a little something new from this episode. I hope you're all taking away, not just from this episode, but from this whole series, um, a little something new or something you didn't know about before. And if you like this series, this is something that we haven't done before. If you want to hear more series like this, please let us know, DM us, interact with us in social media, um, and let us know. We certainly will be having more episodes coming up in the future with candidates, other organizations, other experts to talk about 2022 as things heat up. Uh, it's going to be a busy year. And one more thing I'd like to do is give a shout out to Mateo. Mateo really was the energy behind this series. Uh, he did a lot of the yeoman's work, setting things up, teeing things up. So again, Mateo, if you're listening, huge shout out to you. Thank you so much for all you've done. Uh, again, I hope Texas is treating you well and uh, can't wait to see some of the updates from you in the future about how Texas is and Hopefully it's warmer down there than it is here. So we hope that you enjoy this podcast. Please subscribe, share with your friends, do all the good stuff. Um, we're heading into another great year, year number two for the podcast. We started in 2020. We were really hitting our stride in 2021, and here we are in 2022 keeping things going. So thank you. Tune back in in a little bit. We've got some great episodes coming down the pike, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye-bye. On behalf of the D.C. Young Republican Executive Board, we thank you for listening to the District Download. Make sure to hit that subscribe button, give us a five-star review, and share this episode with your friends. The District Download is currently available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, and wherever else you may listen to podcasts. Music